Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to another ADRA Canada Insider. We're so glad you've joined us. This is the podcast where we uh, meet the interesting people that work here at ADRA Canada and hear some of their fascinating stories that they have to share as they return from the field uh, where ADRA Canada is uh, conducting their projects around the world. And uh, I have uh, three people around the table with me today. Let's maybe go around the table and see who we have here. Hi, it's Kayla again. And Michael is joining you yet again. Hi, I'm Sharmila. I am the Supporter Relations Director, and this is the first time I am participating. Okay, we're so happy to have you here with us, Sharmila. We're going to find out a little bit about you and uh, the work that you do here. And also, you are our guest uh, because you have just returned from some travel abroad. And uh, so we're looking forward to hearing about that. And Kayla, you are usually one of our co-hosts, but today you are one of our guests. because I'm you also have... being interviewed today. <laughs> yeah, 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 this is a little different. I'm on like the different side of the table today, so yeah, it's going to be different. <laughs> All right. Well, perhaps we should start with you, Sharmila. Maybe uh, tell us uh, again, what is your position here at ADRA? And uh, maybe just tell us a little bit about the work that you do here. Okay. Um, So again, my name is Sharmila. I am the Supporter Relations Director. I've been with ADRA for about four and a half years. I started out as a fundraiser here at ADRA, but uh, very shortly after that became the director. And that means that I'm in charge of all our communications and all our fundraising. And so I'm responsible for things like our gift catalog, our global impact newsletter, the e-news that goes out on a monthly basis. I'm also responsible for making sure that we're at camp meetings to meet all of our lovely supporters and that we are really showing people what good that they're accomplishing through us in this world. All right. So how was it that you came to join the people here at ADRA Canada? What were you doing before? Well, I I joined ADRA. I've always loved ADRA, actually, but I never thought I was the typical ADRA worker. And I I do tell people that I'm the most unlikely ADRA worker ever (laughs) because I always had this conception that ADRA workers were these wonderful, dedicated, self-sacrificing people who worked and lived in places like Africa and Asia, and I didn't really see a place for myself at ADRA. But coming to know more about the organization, I realized, you know, ADRA Canada actually has a broad range of things that we do. We don't just work in places like Africa and Asia. Here in Canada, in our office, have accountants and marketers and design people and admin assistants. And it's a really dedicated group of people. It's just broader in scope than I originally thought. And so previously, I was working at the Canadian Cancer Society in their fundraising departments. And I got a lot of experience that I really wasn't very conscious about. And so when a position opened up at ADRA, I was a little bit hesitant because I wasn't sure that it would transfer, but um, I gave it a shot. And so far, so good, I hope. Yeah. And the funny thing is, is when Charmel and I, we started mostly on the same day, um, on the books, we started on the same day. But I remember Sharmila when we, when she first started, she she was very adamant that she never wanted to travel, and she was very excited that her role as a fundraiser meant she never had to travel. And then shortly after that, you became director. And what did you have to do? What was it about a month after you became director? That I had to travel. Yes, I I um 
I will not lie, I'm a big fan of proper bathrooms. And <laughs> I can't say that I've encountered a proper bathroom in every single place that I've ever traveled to for ADRA, which is, again, one of the reasons I would have put myself down as one of the most unlikely ADRA workers ever. But I had a conversation with our executive director, James, and I said, you know, I don't really need to travel. I, you know, I'll just be able to collect what I need just from emails with the offices. And I remember he gave me this look. (laughs) (laughs) And um, experience proved him right. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just not possible for us to do what we do only through Skype. And it's been really exciting to be privileged enough to go to some of the places where we work because we don't stay very close to tourist areas. The areas that we work are often very rural, very remote, very underdeveloped, and getting there can be an adventure. I've been to Nepal twice, and their roads are an adventure in themselves. You know, you're climbing up the side of the mountain on a one-lane dirt road, no guardrails, praying (laughs) that everything's going to be okay, and trusting in the skill of the driver and you know more than once you're going up the mountain and there's a truck coming down the other side and you've got to back up uh, to a place where the truck can pass you and the unspoken rule seems to be whichever the bigger vehicle is they're the one with the right of way (laughs) and so um, it really is a privilege though because We do reach quite deeply into some of the most needy places on this planet. And the work that we do is often unseen. It's uncelebrated, but so very, very necessary. And the people that we touch are God's children, the same way that we are here, wherever we are. And it's really a blessing to see that the support given by the people of Canada really touches lives around the world. Thank you for that. All right. So in today's podcast, we are going to be visiting the country of Nepal. And that's because Sharmila and Kayla have just returned from visiting some of our projects in Nepal. And uh, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about the reason why ADRA Canada is doing projects in Nepal at the moment. So we currently have two projects in Nepal, both in response to the April 25th, 2015 earthquake that uh, devastated many parts of that country. The first project is called Dress. A very generous donor gave us enough money to rehabilitate four classrooms in a very rural remote school on the top of a mountain that was destroyed by the earthquake. And so those four classrooms are going to be able to accommodate classes of at least 40 students apiece. And one of those classrooms is actually going to be a computer lab. This particular school is so remote that once you leave the highway, you have to travel along a dirt road. The journey itself is about an hour and a half by car over two mountains and crossing two rivers. And we chose this school because the likelihood that they would have been able to rebuild on their own was almost zero. And there are many schools in Nepal even three years after the earthquake, that have not been able to rebuild because there just simply hasn't been enough funding. Earthquakes of that magnitude in a country like Nepal really are devastating. Wells were destroyed, schools were destroyed, houses were destroyed, hundreds of people lost their lives, many more were injured. 
And it really sparked um, in that country a desire to rebuild better. And so the school itself is being built or has been built with earthquake resilient measures. Mm. And the parents are so very, very happy that their children will be in a space that will be safe. Tell us about those villages that have not been able to rebuild their schools. What are they doing? What are the children doing in those villages for their education? So life goes on. And even though they have not been able to rebuild the schools, what they've done is they've set up makeshift classrooms. And so you're looking at wooden frames, possibly sheltered by zinc or some other kind of flimsy uh, roofing material. And one of the things you notice as you drive along is that even though the zinc sheets are bolted down into the wooden framework, they still have to put heavy things on top, rocks or old Mm -hmm. tires or something else to keep them weighted down because if it gets too windy, they can blow off. And so, and it makes the classrooms very hot, I imagine. Hot, and um, some of the students were telling us that when it gets windy, debris like leaves are flying in their faces, and it's distracting, and you're hearing everything that's going on because it's not a closed classroom. You know, there may or may not be windows. You know, the wind rustles. You hear what's going on in the other Mm. classrooms. Um, so it's it's not the best learning environment. But um, one of the things I've always noticed is that so many people are so dedicated to education and a lot of these students they don't live five minutes away from the school they live a half an hour walk away from Mm. the school and this is not flat terrain (laughs) this is on a mountainside and a lot of them are not sticking to the road a lot of them are cutting across the mountain itself you know through the forest And so they're really dedicated and really invested in getting as much education as they possibly can because Mm -hmm. they know that's the key to a better life, not just for themselves personally, but for their families as well. It was sometimes difficult for us to get around just because it was monsoon season and the roads are not all paved and these dirt roads, they don't just turn to mud, they turn to sticky mud. And it can be very difficult to extricate a vehicle from that kind of mud, especially if you are on the side of a mountain with no guardrail Mm. on a one-lane road. And so it's always best to be as safe as possible. And so, you know, we weren't always able to get to where we needed to be without difficulty. And I was talking to our partners who are working on these projects, Stress and Foster, out in rural Nepal. And, you know, to them, this is just normal. And if they're not able to get somewhere by vehicle, they start walking. Mm -hmm. In flip-flops sometimes. In flip-flops. In flip-flops, yeah. Very true. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was remarking to Kayla one day that their feet never seem to be dirty. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was wearing hiking shoes (laughs) and they were definitely not as pristine when I left as when I got there. They have daily communion. (laughs) You know, (laughs) They they are just absolutely amazing. And but these staff members, you know, the villages that we were slated to visit are the ones that were by roads. Mm. Whether they were dirt one lane roads or the highway, they were by roads. But a lot of these people don't live near roads. They don't live off the road. They live, you know, two mountains across mm. or over from the road. And our staff members have 
gone to, I think the project's being implemented in 80 villages. Wow. And they've gone to every single village. And they walk sometimes up to four hours one, one way, way. Mm. to get to a village. And if they have to climb through the jungle to get there, they climb through the jungle to get there. And once they get there, you know, they visit with everyone they need to visit with and sometimes end up, you know, staying the night in the village before making the trek back to the office the next day. And I was really impressed by the dedication because it's it's not easy. You know, I get upset if there's traffic on the 401, yeah. but <laughs> there's no traffic because there's no 401. And this is really hard physical walking and there are no complaints. Yeah. You know, I was asking them, you know, what are the challenges that you have with this project? And, you know, they would mention the ruralness and the distance, but it wasn't anything that they saw as at all overwhelming. Mm. This was just what they wanted to do, what they needed to do to ensure the success of the people that we're working with. That's wonderful. These are very resilient people. You think of the the fame of uh, some of these porters in Nepal that uh, carry these 80-pound backpacks up the hillsides for the tourist mountain climbers. Mm -hmm. And so this is the stock that these people are probably from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Kayla and I, as we were driving on the road, we constantly see these um, ladies. Elderly ladies. Yes. Yeah. And they had these massive baskets on mm. their back and they were full of corn or fodder or, mm. and you know, whatever it is that they were taking to the market to sell for wasn't their it, families. Wasn't it for the, their cows? Yeah. Yes, they but, have what they call zero point grazing there. In other words, you don't let your cow wander through the village eating whatever it can uh, find. Okay. You have to go get the fodder for the cow <laughs> and bring it back to the house where it's tied up. And uh, so that's what you're seeing most of when they've got the big baskets on mm. their back. They're bringing back fodder for their animals. Yeah. And also, like, the field staff were telling us about the challenges they faced when they were building the school and how they had to bring all of this resources and materials into these villages um, and the challenges they faced on the roads and getting everything there. And a lot of the times, the cement and the rebar, everything had to be carried in from the highway. Wow. Over two mountains. Yeah, <laughs> and people had to carry these there. A lot of the times, the road was washed out, so they couldn't. Oh my. And so it's just, yeah... So one of the amazing things about the school project was not just the school itself and the students and teachers that are, you know, learning and working there, but the fact that it was only possible because of one very generous donor. I remember the day that the check turned up in the office. It was very unexpected. And we were absolutely delighted mm. because it, it's not always that you're able to get one project done with one donation. Most right. of our projects, it's um, a combination. You have people who are sending in $5 and $20 and $2,000 and, you know, you collect it all up and you move ahead with what you can do. But with this donation, it was incredible to see that we were able to use it in its entirety for this one project. And I remember the staff talking about some of the challenges that they had. And one of the things that they were talking about were the price of cement. Because over the course of the project, the price of cement doubled oh, in no. Nepal. And clearly that had a major impact on the budget. But God is good because they were able to move things around and shift things around. And some things came in a little cheaper. And 
we were able to do the entire project just with the one donation. And so you can really see the blessing of the Lord because we're not expecting this at all. And then it happened and always there will be challenges, but now we have four new classrooms that are going to benefit so many students over mm. the course of the next, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, all because one person was touched. Yeah. And that's really incredibly amazing that um, we have that kind of generosity in this world. Yeah, I, that's very heart-touching to hear a story like that. When you think of so many other communities in Nepal that still are uh, trying to conduct their classrooms under these hot, zinc-roofed shelters, how wonderful it would be if some of our other listeners could be touched too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also uh, be generous and help a community in the side of a mountain way up in rural Nepal. And, uh, you know, we we watch the news And so many things happen all the time. But when something this devastating happens to a community, the effects really last years. Mm -hmm. You know, it may be off the news cycle in a couple of days or a couple of weeks and you don't hear about it anymore. But these people are really living with the effects. And, you know, I'm so thrilled that as Adra, we don't just go in for the first couple of days or a couple of weeks. We really try to stay as long as we possibly can and help people not just to survive a disaster, but to recover from the disaster. Mm -hmm. And this is a principle that we try to put into practice as much as possible. You know, we've done that in the Philippines. You know, we're still in Cambodia and Rwanda. We are really trying to make an impact that isn't short-term, but long-term and life-changing. Right. Okay, and the second project. So the second project is called Foster, and this is a livelihood recovery project because when the earthquake happened, people didn't just lose their homes, they lost their sources of income. Mm. You know, roads were out. Many of them were not able to continue with their businesses. Many of them were not able to continue with their farming. And in any case, these are not people who've gone to agricultural school. These are people who are learning orally and following the traditions that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have passed down to them on how to grow their crops. But these are traditional agricultural practices that are passed down from, you know, family member to family member, and they're not always as efficient as they could be. Mm. And one of the things that our, our participants in this project were telling us was that, you know, they would plant things and maybe 20% would fail. Maybe 60% would fail. It would all depend on what was happening with the weather and the crop itself. And with the techniques that we were showing them, with the new practices that we were teaching them, they were able to increase the amount of crops. So instead of just scattering seed, for instance, into a Mm. field, they were actually learning how to do nursery seedlings where every single seed would translate into a viable plant. And so it was a revelation to them because this is something that they had never thought about before, about growing seeds in a nursery situation to become seedlings that would then be planted outside. Mm. Because if you scatter seed, 
you know, some of it will grow, some of it will get eaten by birds, some of it will just <laughs> It's burn. like Jesus' parable. I was just going to say, it's like the, <laughs> the story of the sower. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and so it was by chance. Mm-hmm. It was, I don't want to say by luck, but it was not the most optimal way of going about right. growing these crops. And so they were really grateful and really happy that such a simple technique was maximizing what they could do in their own lives and for us you know if we have a garden it's it's not always a concern if we don't get as full a, a harvest as we would like michael i think knows a little bit about that yeah. frank as well yeah, because... the, for example just in our garden in our backyard we planted a bunch of peas and then the bunny came in and ate them all <laughs> but we're not going to starve because yeah. we can just go to the grocery store yeah. around the corner and, yeah. and get whatever the bunny ate but there, it's completely different. Mm-hmm. Because for, for these people, it's not as simple as going to the grocery store. Um, grocery stores, there are fewer and far between. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of the hopes that many of our project participants have is that we will be able to help them set up what we would call farmer's markets, where people could come together and sell their organic crops and vegetables to their neighbors Mm -hmm. in one area. And there are 1,500 families that live in the mountains, but there's no place for them to come. And it's not as simple as just setting up some stalls because the produce has to come in. They have to walk it in over these mountains, and it does take some time. And they need a place to store it safely where it's not going to fall prey to whatever rodents are by and and where they can really have some kind of organization to it because the alternative is for everybody to walk down to the highway and that particular village is about a two-hour drive from the highway so you can imagine walking down muddy wet mountain roads to try and get to the highway and then they have to take whatever price is being offered on the highway and there's always a markup clearly when it gets to Kathmandu but they're not benefiting from the full price that they could get Mm -hmm. and so you know these are the kinds of things that sound really simple but they do cost something and we are hoping to be able to facilitate this part of the recovery. Another part of the project was what they call polyhouses. And so they are exactly like greenhouses, but they're made on the top of plastic sheeting and around the sides of insect netting to keep bugs out. Okay. And they're actually really hot mm. <laughs> inside. And they have drip irrigation systems which are very efficient and really help cut down on the use of water and the wastage of water. And inside, what they were growing when Kayla and I visited were tomatoes. Uh-huh. And uh, tomatoes are, you know, really common. Even my dad plants tomatoes every year. But within this particular season, if you can bring tomatoes to market, you can get 40% more mm than you would normally because it's not the correct season. And so I was really impressed at the way that they had set up these polyhouses. They were very professionally done. The plantings were very professional, very evenly spaced tomatoes. Mm -hmm. They all looked incredibly healthy. They were not blossoming quite yet, but within a few weeks they would. And it was really encouraging to see how neat and tidy and perfect these plants Mm -hmm. and these polyhouses look. 
And they last about five years. And, you know, I was talking a little about, you know, the back end economics with our staff. And they were saying that the poly houses actually pay for themselves twice in the first crop. Wow. wow. Because, you know, we show them how to build them and we help them with the materials. And within one season of tomatoes, it pays for itself and makes a profit, which I thought was absolutely amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm used to hearing about, you know, Western businesses where you're expected to make a loss the first year and you just kind of have to keep going and hope. But to hear that they are recovering so quickly what they sink into it was really, really great. Mm-hmm. And this polyhouse was also on the edge of a, a terrace. So it's not the easiest journey up to the poly uh, house either. Well, not the easiest for us. For us <laughs> the Nepali yes. people were, um, it was seemingly effortless That's for them. A walk in the park for them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Now, I understand that this project also had a component of goats. Is that right? Yes. It was a little bit different than I was expecting. Uh, each of our projects is very contextual. And so we look at what the needs are in that particular situation and try and fill that specific need. And going to the project, I thought that the goats were very similar to what we're doing in Rwanda, where we're giving goats to a family. And those families are then able to give their children the goat's milk to drink and they take care of the goats and then they're able to sell them, you know, after maybe six months or so and increase their income that way. In Nepal, it's a little bit different. And so what happens is we are giving breeding bucks to each of these groups that have been formed for this project. And they are able to rent out the buck to uh, people who are interested in expanding their goat herds. And they're able to charge a nice commission on that. And that's actually uh, working out well. They have two rates, one for members of the group and one for non-members, which of course is higher. The money that they get from that is actually not distributed to the group but put into the group's savings and loan program Mm. and one of the things that maybe i should backtrack and talk about the groups a little bit sure um the reason that we are putting groups together is because it really helps people to solidify the learnings that we're teaching them Because if we teach an individual, you're going to forget some things and you're going to remember some things and that's going to be different for everybody. Everyone's going to remember different things and forget different things. And when our staff are not in the village, you might not have anybody to talk to to say, you know, I don't remember exactly how to handle this situation. But with the group, we put together, you know, maybe 20, maybe 30 people in a community and a lot of them are friends a lot of them are relations and so they they have previous bonds and they can talk amongst themselves and say okay well you know i forgot exactly how to do the nursery seedling planting and they can help each other mm-hmm. and the other benefit is that we encourage them to start these community savings and loan groups amongst themselves. The group decides how much every person's going to contribute for that month. And it might be a number as small as 100 Nepali rupees, 
which is under one US dollar per month. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, it's small, but it's feasible. And it over time becomes very significant. And many of these people have had no savings before, didn't even know it was possible for them to save because they were living such a hand to mouth existence. But with the support of the group, they generally all manage to do it. And then that gives them peace of mind because if there's a medical emergency or if they need money to pay their children's tuition or if some other situation comes up, they have a little something set aside that they can use to handle that. And the money from the breeding box goes into this pot. Mm -hmm. And members can also not just take out their own savings, but they can go to the group and say, you know, I have this business idea. Maybe I want to start selling saris in the village and I'd like to get some seed money to go and get some stock and you know do what I need to do and they're they set up payment plans and you know within three to six months maybe a year it's paid back and with interest of course and they have different interest rates for members and non-members and it's another way for them to really support the people of their community and to help them find ways because so often it really doesn't take a lot it's not what we would consider a lot to start a business or to improve their lives but they just don't have access to it Mm. and And this is not an outsider coming with, you know, a really um, extreme rate of interest. These are their friends and relatives saying, okay, we'll help you out. And, you know, we've had success stories, not just in Nepal, but in uh, the Philippines and in some other areas where we've run these projects. And it's really teaching people to be self-sufficient and independent. It's just giving them a little bit of a helping hand along the way. Yeah. Giving them tools and not, you know, handouts. These are the unbanked people of our world that are now learning about savings and being able to access funding that isn't from a loan shark that comes with sometimes 500, 600% interest per year. Now they're working with something that's very manageable and they can start their own business and be successful, pay back that loan and improve their lives. All right, Kayla, this is your first travel abroad, is that right? Yes. And the first travel to see ADRA projects. So we're very excited (laughs) to hear about your impressions. Well, going into this trip, me and Sharmila kind of knew the odds were against us a little bit since we were going in during the monsoon season. So there were a lot of heavy rains. And so that kind of interrupted our trip sometimes. Mm -hmm. This time of year, it's difficult to reach some of these rural areas that Sharmila was mentioning. I don't think you really understand how difficult it can be to get to these areas until you're on your way there. Mm -hmm. And you realize how narrow the roads are. And when it's raining for only 10 minutes, it can make all the difference if you can reach a project or not just by how muddy the roads can be if you're going to end up getting stuck in the mud or not Um, over the bank (laughs) yeah I mean I remember the first day we got there the river was very low and very blue looking but by the second day it had rained all night and the river was probably like five feet higher and brown just completely muddy and faster and faster yeah you did have a bridge though you didn't have to go Well, we were going around the river, but there were suspension bridges going across for people to be able to walk across the river, which was terrifying looking. I don't know if I could ever have done that, but you see all these people walking across, being able to cross the river just to reach their homes or their farms. 
Now, Nepal is one of my favorite countries to visit because of the mountains. I love mountains. Oh, yeah, so the terraces us. are beautiful. Um, when you're just driving through them, there's just so many layers to them, and it's just so beautiful, especially when the clouds clear and it's so blue, and you, it really brings out the colors and the beauty of their culture there. And and uh, the world-famous Mount Everest is in Nepal. Did you get to see Mount Everest? Michael. <laughs> so something that's really funny about Mount Everest we went to this tourist area where they have these cable cars. And so, you know, you pay, you get in the cable car, and it takes about 10 minutes to go up. So it's quite the journey to get all the way up to the top of this mountain where these there are these beautiful temples there. Um, so we're on our way up, and I'm so excited because they're going to have all these mountains, and especially Mount Everest. is something that I've always wanted to see. So we get up to the top, and I, I'm not trying to get myself too excited because I'm, I know that there's a chance I won't be able to see it. We get to the top of the mountain and it's just gray skies oh, no. everywhere. <laughs> and they have these posters with like the mountain with the name. And it's like, if you stand here, you can see it. And it's just like gray sky. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, well, this is fun. So I got a picture with it anyways, just to kind of say I've been there and I saw it, but I didn't actually see it. <laughs> but um, Sharmila and I, when we were on our flight heading back, we got a window seat and we were able to see Mount Everest by air in our airplane so okay. i did have a chance to see it so it was definitely worth it that's good but i just didn't get to see it from the touristy area <laughs> and and just to be honest michael was the one who told us that we'd have that chance and he made sure that we got seats on the right side of the plane and the right seats mm-hmm. where we would have that chance so thank you michael well i'm glad i'm glad i could be of some help sorry sorry about your lack of a view though yeah oh well <laughs> All right, we've come to that uh, time in our podcast where we talk to our guests a little bit about uh, some of their travel adventures, uh, what it's like to travel abroad. And Kayla, since this is your <laughs> first uh, trip abroad, maybe you could tell us what it was like for you to to get on that plane and maybe the preparation that you had to go through, the advice that you got from some of the other adverts. Yeah, well, I mean, there's only so much you can prepare for when you go into a trip. I felt like I was overly prepared to a certain extent. Um, My suitcase was fully packed. I got all the travel tips from like Michael and my other colleagues. So that was really helpful. Was was this your first experience with jet lag? What was that like? Oh, (laughs) so our first flight was to China and it's a 15 hour flight. And it actually wasn't that bad. I thought it was going to be a lot worse. So that was fine. The jet lag was a little tough at first, but eventually you kind of just get used to it and you just kind of have to go on with your day. And once you're kind of in the field and you're doing everything, I guess like you're not your adrenaline kicks in, but you kind of just get into the pace of everything and it was fine. So I was okay with okay. the jet lag so much, but I do like a lot of the writing here with um, the website and a lot of our social media posts. And before I went into the field, I was always writing and reading about how rural these communities are. And you don't really realize until <laughs> how far they really are until you're in a car and you're driving and you're driving and you wonder when you're whenever you're going to get there. And you think you're there and then you realize it's still a three-hour walk yeah. to reach these places. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was just such a, an eye-opening experience for me because I was like, wow, 
how you really think you know how rural these areas are until you're there and you're like wow these people have to walk so far I mean when you're in the field and you're meeting with um, some of our beneficiaries it's just such an eye-opening experience they are so grateful for the work that we do just because like Shamila was saying after the earthquake we do stay there to help them recover it's not just for such a short time and I think that um, after meeting with some of the students of the school they were just so grateful for the new school that they're going to go into and they are such motivated students they were so excited to tell me about their dreams and what they want to do after they finish school they want to continue their education because they know that they want to have a better life for themselves and they're just so grateful and I think it's just so rewarding and so nice to hear and um, one thing I was really touched by was the dedication of the field staff in Adra Nepal. They were so helpful and so kind, and they're so dedicated to the work that they do. They're just so great. Um, the long hours that they put in when they walk to these areas that are so rural, I hope that they understand like how appreciative we are of their work mm. yeah, and their dedication. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for that. That seems to be a theme that's coming through from both of you, the dedication <laughs> of the, the local mm-hmm. Adra staff there in Nepal. And we do appreciate all that they do. All right, we've come to that point in the podcast where we answer your questions about ADRA. And if you have a question about what ADRA does and how we do it, why we do it, uh, please email us your question to touch at adra.ca. That's stayintouch at adra.ca. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, if we read your question on air, we will send you as our gift, Faith to Change the World, a book that was written by one of our staff members about uh, John Howard, the founder of ADRA Canada. The question for today is about the people that ADRA works for. We hear that they are so poor. Why don't they just move to a place where they can get a job? Michael, (laughs) <laughs> Can you share for us? Well, I, I think it's kind of fitting that that would be the question since we're talking about like remote uh, Nepal and and some of the communities I've been to are very remote and and I feel like the idea that people can just pack up and move is a very... Sounds very Canadian. Yeah, right? it's a very Canadian <laughs> uh, Canadian idea, I guess. Like you think of the people in Newfoundland that uh, some of their income sources, possibilities, opportunities have dried up, so they go to Fort McMurray, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and the mobility within Canada is a lot easier than the mobility in some of these countries. In some countries, where you are from is, is where you stay. There's rules about where you can live. I, I don't know what the rules are like to Nepal, but I think most of it just has to do with uh, tradition. They know their land. Their families have been there for generations and generations. And the idea of just moving to a city and getting a job is one that it might work here. But in places like Nepal, when all you know is small scale farming or raising goats, what are you going to do in a city that it's not an option for them in most cases the cities you can't have a goat farm in a city there's no land to grow small scale vegetables and if you're not trained in business, getting a job becomes a lot harder. There's the social aspect of it as well. In some countries, there's a, a social class. So people will be able to tell that you've moved from the, the country and, mm. and therefore are of lower status than everyone else. And then there's the risks to your children. Um, what can happen in the city to children in some of these countries are it's not good things, especially when you are desperate for food and desperate for money. There are many things that just aren't good 
about packing mm-hmm. up and moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why ADRA is, is going to where people are to try and help improve their lives where they are so that they don't have to move to a city and then put themselves at risk of all of these different things that can come with moving to a city. Yeah, it really is a very complex question. And for each individual, it is different. And, you know, there's no welfare system in most of these countries. And so if you sell everything that you have and manage to get to a city, if you don't know anybody, if you don't have any skills, like Michael says, it can be very difficult to find any kind of employment. And there could be language barriers as well, because a lot of times there are dialects or even completely different languages in a rural area than there are in the city. In a city like, you know, if you want to say Kathmandu, you might need some English skills if you're going to be working in an area where there are a lot of tourists. And so if you don't have those skills, if you've never had that opportunity, you're very unlikely to be able to make any kind of living. And in some places, uh, there are checkpoints. And if you don't have the proper papers, you can't migrate. Mm -hmm. You are going to have to stay in that area. And if you're a stateless person, say if you were born in that area, but you don't have papers, you can never leave. It's just the way that it is. And that might mean that you don't, you aren't entitled to healthcare. You're not entitled to an education. You're not entitled to employment. And so giving people skills to be self-sufficient is often the best thing that we can do for people. And to be honest, there are people that move. A lot of the people in Cambodia, for instance, go to Thailand to work in the unofficial construction areas. In Nepal, a lot of their young men and their husbands, they've gone to Kuwait in the Mm -hmm. Middle East to do construction or other jobs as well. When we were building the school, one of the challenges that we ran into were skilled labor shortages because you can't just build a safe school with unskilled labor you need to have architects you need to have masons and one of the reasons that you know we had to put the schedule together that we did with the building of the school was we had to make sure that we were able to bring in these skilled workers and many of them were simply not available you know there's a lot of rebuilding happening in Nepal and you have to wait until you can get the skilled labor so that really is hard on families I'm sure the families in Newfoundland don't like that their father and their husbands are away for, you know, six, 12 months at a time Mm. in Fort McMurray or or wherever else, but they do what they need to survive. And, you know, people are resilient, but it's clearly better if families are able to stay together. And so for some families, the best option is for one of the caregivers, the mom or the dad, because it's not only the men. We've run into situations where it's the mother who has the ability to go and get a job and the father that stays home with the children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he may have a job in the village as well. And so, you know, you get those challenges. But solving the issue of poverty is not as simple as mobility. It is complicated. Every situation is different. And each country is different as well with the permissions that they have and the welfare that's available. And we're really lucky in Canada, but in many places around the world, these are really difficult things that people have to grapple with. Michael, you're right. I I have visited in the homes of people living in shanty towns around major cities of our world, many who have had to 
actually leave where they were because maybe a dam construction project was flooding their land and they were forced to go. And so they end up in these cities all of a sudden with a large family and no way to grow any food to feed those kids. And they are placed in a very precarious situation, especially when they can't find work in the city. So our work actually does end up covering both sides Mm -hmm. in many cases, because for the people that do move, we try to be supportive if they end up as a refugee or if there are other struggles that they deal with. Well, I think a good example of that would be even in Mongolia, because we've been working in what is basically shanty towns around the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. The uh, the nomads have moved to Ulaanbaatar and are now living in shanties, well, yurt villages, gur villages um, mm-hmm. around there. And we've been working with them, as well as working in more remote areas in, in Mongolia with people that haven't moved. Mm-hmm. So there's that... Uh, we, like you said, both sides. Yeah. And the common denominator is always need. And so, you know, when we are helping people, we don't look at where they're from. We don't look at who they are. We don't look at what language they speak. We look at what their needs are and how we can best Mm -hmm. help them. And it's not us handing people things. It's really looking at their situation and trying to figure out, okay, what can we do that will have the best long-term outcome that will help them to be as self-sufficient, independent, and uh, give them as much dignity as possible. Well, thank you very much for joining us for our podcast today on Nepal. We uh, want to once again invite you to comment on our podcast, send them to Stay in touch at adra.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Sharmela and Kayla have come back with lots of photos from their journey to Nepal. And so if you'd like to see some of the things that they saw, please go to our website, adra.ca slash podcasts. And that will take you to this episode where there'll be lots of photos to show. Oh, and we have one announcement too. Very exciting. Kayla? If you are interested in listening to this podcast on the go, we have a great option for you. You can go to the iTunes store or the Android platforms to subscribe to our podcast. You just type in Adra Canada Insider and you can listen to all the episodes that we have already released. And you'll be notified each time we release a new one, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's great. You can subscribe now. And if you're accessing these on our website, you'll notice also that just below the play button, you have the opportunity to subscribe on whatever device you're accessing from uh, to see us on the on the website. It's like having Adri Canada in your pocket. Yeah, it's there perfect. You go. <laughs> <laughs>